0: Hello, everyone. It's May 17th, 2022. Astra has a new launch system called Launch System 2.0 and a new rocket called Rocket 4.0. A bit of a mismatch, I guess, but the important thing is launching rockets with minimal cost, delay, and even personnel. And Astra is good at that. So let's get into how and liftoff. And me through the tower. Welcome to episode 359 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm
1: Ben. I'm Dennis. So I had a headline written up for this show, and it's not really good enough it's not a big enough story to actually include in the show. It's not really space related, but like, I'm really proud of this headline and it's a uh, canoe taking on water. <laughs> like, Come on, <laughs> this headline writes itself. The canoe is a electric company that that's going to uh, maybe be making a, a van for the astronauts to get out to the, the SLS pad. And I mean, it's, it's a really simple story. They're running out of funding and they've, you know, produced like fewer than a hundred vehicles and. They're getting ready to go to full production, but it's just really tight for a startup that's trying to build expensive things. So maybe they'll be making the new Astrovan. Maybe they won't. I think it looks pretty cool. So I would like them to.
2: All right, With the idea being that these new Astrovans should be zero emissions. And so that's yeah. why the idea of like, oh, why can't we just bring back the old Airstreams? And that's the reason why.
1: I mean, to be fair, though, these these cars are driven so little that the amount of emissions that they produce is a rounding error. <laughs> but it's really about the optics and the in- intention, right? You would have
0: less of an impact on the environment if you just bought a used car or some other <laughs> vehicle than having to pay for a brand new one being made. You know what I mean? So
1: Yeah. And one that's not going to pull any other miles off of the road, really. <laughs>
0: rocket 4.0, or the rocket 4.0 unveiling. So um, this is the new astro rocket, um, and it was revealed at a conference. What was it? Uh, Space something 2.0, and this is the...
1: It's Space Tech Day, is what the event was called.
0: Okay, so the event's called Space Tech Day, and uh their launch system is called the launch system 2.0 but this is rocket 4.0 which is included within that so we have a lot of point 0 so yeah so rocket <laughs> 4.0 is part of launch system 2.0 and rocket 4.0 is uh their most ambitious launch vehicle yet
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting like the word unveiling is maybe a bit of an overstatement and ambitious might also be a bit of an overstatement like it's it's iterative right like that's that's what Astra does, is they, they just move on and learn and, like, do things over and over and get better each time. And so, yeah, Rocket 4.0 is definitely bigger, but it's not like, you know, it's not Spaceship.
2: Starship, uh, right? Starship. Yeah.
1: <laughs> man. Man, for a space nerd, I'm bad at remembering such a simple name.
2: Okay, that's fine. It's because it's so simple. That's the problem.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I
2: think you're right. Probably-
1: <laughs> So uh, before we talk more about Rocket 4.0, let's talk about Launch System 2.0. So it's, I mean, it's essentially the same thing as what they were already using. Um, It will be able to fit in shipping containers, as will Rocket 4.0. But um, everything just packs away and you can ship it to wherever and unpack it and and launch. And, you know, speaking of iteration, uh, Launch System 1 started with 21 launch support staffers. and. Now they've gotten it down to eight people required to launch rocket uh, 3.0 for launch system 2.0. They're aiming for having two people be able to show up to a site and launch a rocket.
0: Yeah, that's impressive. That's and
1: you know, this is like, I I don't believe that that is two people walk out there with a bunch of cargo containers and set everything up themselves. It's just two people required to sit there and, you know, wait for the command and press a button to, to start the launch sequence or whatever. But um, Chris Kemp, so, well, so this event, uh, Space Tech Day, it was basically a bunch of Astro PowerPoints and some tours that, you know, cameras were not invited on. And, like, I really wish I was there. It looked like mm-hmm. a lot of fun. I am totally down for a trip out to San Francisco. Uh, maybe I should have worked harder to get out there. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, Chris Kemp, um, when he was unveiling, um, launch system 2.0 had this really interesting way of talking about how many people should be required to launch a rocket. And he said, if hundreds of passengers can get on a jet and fly across the ocean with a pilot and co-pilot, why can't a couple of people fly a rocket? And, you know, he kind of then bashed, uh, airlines a little bit by saying like, our rocket's simpler than an airplane. (laughs) They only need two people. Why should
2: we need more?
0: I mean, that's a good point, except that it's not really the pilots. There's a whole bunch of people um, in the uh, control tower. What the control the air tower? Air traffic
2: control? Yeah. The,
0: yeah. There's a whole bunch of people in the air traffic control tower. So, I mean, it's really not just two pilots. But
2: well, sure. But
1: FCC does the same thing as ATC does. Like, FCC is in charge of saying, you know, hey, let's issue no TAMs and things like that. Like, that's what they do.
2: Analogous to how you were describing it, it's not two people to set it up, but two people to actually operate its launch. In the same way, I guess, that even a plane has to have, you know, maintenance crew and refueling and all the people on the ground that help get Mm -hmm. that plane out there and ready to go.
0: Right. So, this would be two people emission control, let's say, or whatever they call that. But I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it, or I wouldn't hold it against them, like if they needed more, because it's not a perfect analogy just because there's there's not a lot of traffic, right? I mean, you're not launching 10 rockets in, you know, like an hour or something. So it's not the same thing, but yeah, I get the point, which is Mm. right. Not sure. True. But I totally support. And I think it's amazing that, you know, if they can get it down to just two people, then that, it is a big deal, actually.
1: Well, and getting it down to eight people.
0: Or even eight, eight yeah. people
1: is a huge deal.
0: Yeah. Mm. We're so used to seeing, I don't know, like several dozen. Um, that this is pretty yeah. impressive.
1: Uh, Mike in the chat says that the next step is just going to be to make Chris do everything
2: himself. <laughs> 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 Sorry, bud. I wonder what the call-outs would sound like. Are you just like, dude, I'm right here. I'm the only other person you're talking to.
0: <laughs> Chris, go. And that's it.
1: Right, right, right. (laughs) I'm Chris, I say go. (laughs) <laughs> Is anybody else on the other end of this walkie-talkie? Okay, darn. Right, so Chris Kemp, I say, I say he bashed airlines, but like he made a lot of references to airlines and airplane uh, manufacturing. So the entire time he's standing up on this stage, there's a, a rocket 3.0 sitting next to him, and I believe it's LV 0011. I think uh, he, he like he named the mission. It's it was one of the um, one of the tropics. Uh, vehicles. Mm. And the, the, as, at one point he stops and he's just like gesturing to it. And he's like, look at this thing. Like it's basically an airplane. It's got an engine and a fuselage, but like this is way simpler than an airplane. It's, it's a tube with a pointy end and fewer moving parts than an airplane. And he was saying like, if Cessna can crank out, you know, 200 airplanes a year for X number of dollars, why can't we do that with this airplane? Like this is totally doable. And, and then he like actually got into like bashing territory. He had a graph on screen that was sort of an upside down bathtub curve. Um, but it was um, like reusability versus uh, versus quantity versus cost. And he's talking about the relationship of these things. And he said that you could either have the largest rocket and there's a a drawing of Starship on the screen says you can either have the largest rocket that's reused more times than anybody else, or you can have the largest factory producing more rockets than anybody else. And so it's really interesting that, you know, it's really getting into the idea of, you know, disposable syringes um, Mm. being like this really big breakthrough in medical technology. Like you don't need to spend all this time sterilizing and making sure that everything is clean and works like, just use it once. We'll assure that it works in the factory at scale uh, and then use it once and you don't have to worry about it again. And like on the one hand, it's really exciting because he's totally right about this model. But on the other hand, like as a species, we're trying to move towards sustainability and it's a little, Mm. I don't Mm -hmm. know, not, not exactly tone deaf, but it kind of sits a little weird, but you know, all that I'm saying with the total understanding and background that we're not using rockets as fast as we're using disposable plastic uh, hmm. objects. So it's like not really the same thing. It's just kind of the way that, that I have to process it.
0: I think eventually reusability will obviously win out because you can't right. really compete with that in the long term. I mean, for right now, probably, but yeah. Yeah,
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. So then Rocket 4.0, um, and like I said, reveal is maybe a, a bit much, but they did they did quote some specs. Um, not a lot. And at the end there was a and a and Tim Dodd was like, Hey, tell us more about this. Like all the juicy details. Are you doing that? So you're doing that. And Chris basically reiterated what he had said on stage and, and went, and that's it. <laughs> and so, so they're being really tight lipped, but there's some interesting speculation here, um, from space news.com that I think makes a lot of sense. So Rocket 4.0 is going to be doing 300 kilograms to low Earth orbit and 200 kilograms to sun synchronous orbit. Um, Astra's stated goal, I believe, is 300 to 300, uh, 300 kilograms to 300 kilometers. And uh, the the base price for this vehicle that they're quoting is $3.95 million, which is not Cessna money, but... It's pretty darn cheap. Um, Rocket 4.0, they're they they're making it bigger um, so that they can start targeting the, the constellation market. The idea is that uh, Rocket 3.0 is great for a single tiny vehicle. Falcon 9 is great for a single giant vehicle or an incredible number of smaller vehicles. But Rocket 4.0 is targeting more of a, a sweet spot where they're looking at being able to launch Two small satellites or two medium, you know, like constellation medium, not actual satellite medium, right? Mm. Constellation medium is a lot smaller. Uh, but launching like, you know, two satellites at once and being able to build or maybe even replenish uh, a constellation and that that sort of market. Um, to that end, they've got a larger fairing. Uh, I actually need to Google this term. He said, Espa Grande Standard.
2: I know that. And I... Don't even have to look it up. That Go is for it, man. EELV, because I kept seeing it popping up a lot. It's an EELV special payload adapter. So basically, hmm. it's it's that nice and easy one that you can just plug in place, so to speak. NASA has an ESPA capability and all that. And so, yeah, EELV, I believe, was the previous name for that. Now it's called National Special Launch Services or something. That one I would have to look up. But, <laughs> but that's what ESPA means. This <laughs> is it's, it's a compatibility. Did it, did it really
1: change? Okay, so this is actually... Uh, like multiple,
2: yeah, multiple
0: Then embedded a- acronym. acronyms in
2: one. Oh yeah. yeah. It's embedded for sure. Yeah. EELV is now national security space launch.
1: So, so this is not ASPA. This is NSPA. <laughs> NSPA. <laughs> yeah. So is that 15 inch port? So I wonder how big the whole thing is. 15 inches is still a lot smaller than the actual envelope. No, fifteen inches is the port, the the diameter of the interface where you you have a fifteen inch ring on the bottom of your satellite and you plug it in. And then Aspa Grande is twenty four inches. Okay, and the ring height is typically 42.
2: And I got a word wrong. It's not special payload, it's secondary payload. But yeah, so a, a bigger payload
1: with, you know, a, a standard in mind, which is is really lovely. And Chris particularly said, why should people have to redesign a spacecraft? Like people are already using the standard, let's just mm. adapt to them, which was in keeping with the, like the theme of the entire uh, set of presentations, which was we're customer oriented nobody else in space is listening to their customers the way that we are we're going to do what the customers want and fit ourselves to them instead of vice versa so right larger fairing uh bigger payload how do you get that to space uh you use bigger engines right now rocket 2.0 and 3.0 use uh five electric delphin engines which are Astra's, like, in-house, like, their rocket, right? Those rockets, all five of them combined, uh, produce 35,000 pounds of force. They're going to be switching down to an as-yet-unnamed pair of engines, and those two engines will do 70,000 pounds of force, 35 to 70. That amount of force is very similar to the Reaver engine from Firefly, And, uh, Astra signed a contract with Firefly to, uh, license their design. So Firefly initially wanted to just sell them Reavers. We'll, we'll build them, you buy them and fly them. And, uh, Astra said, no, we need more flexibility and we need more control over the process. So they wound up signing kind of a a hazy deal, um, that isn't publicized at all. And they've actually, um, specifically said that some of the reporting on it is wrong, but the idea is they're getting all the designs and the processes. They're going to, they Astra is going to build uh, the reaver in their factory and use it. And so they very specifically did not name the engine. Uh, they had uh, footage that they played of uh, test stand footage and the engine was blurred out. So you couldn't see it. Like even the, it was blurred out all the way up to the tip of the engine bell. <laughs> Hmm. Um so they really didn't want to release any information on it. Although, you know, that that could also be um just being super cautious about potential ITAR, but you know, whatever. Um they 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 did not name it. However, Chris confirmed that that these two engines are going to be turbopump engines uh rather than the electric uh dolphin engine. The current upper stage uses one ether engine. Seems reasonable. They might add a second one, depends on you know how how the actual flight profile works out. But yeah, and then the the entire stack burns Kerolox, which uh, is totally unsurprising. So one of the other things they were talking about was um, this Astra constellation that they want to do, and we've talked about this on the show before. Uh, it's just something that I tend to forget that they're not just a, a rocket company. They want to be an everything company. Last year, I believe it was last year, they bought uh, Apollo Fusion, the ion engine company, and uh, Chris said that they've sold 82 of their ion engines, the Astra spacecraft engine, which is pretty cool. The way that it was worded, I don't believe that's 82 engines delivered. I believe that's 82 engines sold. Then this is pretty cool they're opening a new launch site or they they're going to be moving to a new launch site. Uh is going to be moving into the Saxavord Spaceport. Um this is in the Shetland Islands. I had to look it up on Google Maps to remember what the heck they look like. Um but uh just kind of like a uh loby kind of uh two or three islands. I think it's one big one and like two small ones and then a bunch of little tiny ones. <laughs> um, but, uh, there's this peninsula on like the Northeast top, right, Northeast side, um, which is where the spaceport's going to be going. It's called the Lambda nets, Lambda Ness peninsula. And there used to be, um, RAF bases or an RAF base, multiple facilities on the North end of the Shetland islands, which, you know, make sense, world wars, etc. Um, and so they are going to have, they, there's already a radar base that's out there. I don't believe it's still being used. Um, one of the, um, one of the RAF bases is actually, uh, like a historic site. And so you're not allowed to touch it, but you know, they actually decided, okay, yeah, the spaceport is more important, uh, to kind of fuel the uh, Shetland economy. Hmm. So, uh, they got permission to do that. They're going to be building um three launch pads uh, on the Ness Peninsula and then they're going to have support buildings um sort of scattered around the the north end of uh, of the island. It, it's really interesting the Ness Peninsula. If you go down to the route and then just go it, I didn't measure it, but it looks like maybe a mile away from like the um, a conservative definition of the root of this peninsula is a house that on Google Maps is marked as the farthest north dwelling in the UK. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's very far north. Um Actually, I looked it up. The latitude is almost exactly the latitude of Kodiak. I think Kodiak yeah. is like wow. 80 degrees and Shetland is like 78 degrees, something like that. Like You know, it's within, it's within the error of me right-clicking on the page, right? (laughs) And then even though it's a very similar latitude, it seems likely that they will have to launch north because if you launch east, that's Europe. Then it's bad. If you launch south, that's England and then Spain and then Africa, and that's bad. So I'm assuming they can only really launch north. However, on the during the presentation, they said that this provided additional inclinations, or actually, uh, I, additional inclinations is a quote from the Space News article. I don't. I skipped around in the in the Space Tech Day recording, and I did not see them actually talking about Saxivord, so that may have been a, a separate announcement. I um, don't want to get myself into trouble there.
2: I think you're bang on in terms of just going to have to launch more northerly than you can potentially do if you wanted. At Kodiak, because if you look at their yeah. website and they give the range of inclinations they can hit, uh, Kodiak, their lowest, their low end is 59 degrees, while Saxaford the low end is 75 degrees. And again, they're at like the same latitude pretty much. And so 16 yeah. degree difference.
1: That's intense. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. So that's three launch sites, right? They don't have a fourth or they haven't already hit three. It's just Kodiak and, and Cape Canaveral. Are they, they're not are they looking
2: at vandenberg not that i've heard of but yeah presumably so their hope i guess is to launch all over the planet <laughs> but we'll, well see yeah, how, I mean, how well that goes <laughs> i i've got a
1: feeling if if you gave chris you know free reign he'd be launching out of your nearest target's parking lot <laughs> um, and like i say that flippantly but like that's not too far off from the truth like they yeah, could, that's the goal. In theory, they could do that, and that's really cool.
0: That is the goal. And I guess it's really just because of all of the FAA restrictions, obviously. Um, that is the huge the huge limit there. But
1: and, and the the moral implications of flying rockets over residential areas. But yeah.
0: Well that too. I guess I meant that <laughs> by by way of the FAA saying so. But
2: yeah. All right. <laughs> but, <laughs> sure.
0: But um yeah, I sometimes forget that, you know, this is meant to be very, very mobile. And so yeah, you can put it in a cargo container or, or you could put it on a truck or whatever and just you know drive there or put on a boat. Um, mm-hmm. This is you know like the world's most transportable rocket, I guess, um, mm-hmm. or at least that's the idea. That's the whole goal.
2: Yeah, during his during his presentation, he did bring up that uh, essentially FAA licensing or yeah FAA licensing is going to limit your uh, launch cadence, just in principle, at a given site. And so having multiple sites kind of works against that.
1: I mean, we've certainly seen that with SpaceX. You mm-hmm. know, like their their closest launch times or their, you know, fastest launch cadence between launches is not at the same site. It's at, it's at multiple mm. sites.
0: I didn't know that there was a limit that they imposed. I thought that the limit was for some other reason, but there's just a, they, they just don't want rockets launching one after the other. I,
2: I, I could be wrong, but my understanding, it sounded almost like it's just a matter of that's just how it is right now. <laughs> if you're gonna go and apply for licensing with them, do not expect to be able to get back-to-back licenses. Okay. Yeah.
1: And and that's that's changing, right? Like just with the mm-hmm. the three tropics missions that we mentioned last week, those are all under the same launch license.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I haven't looked at it. I don't know what the theoretical legal fastest they could launch those guys is, but um, mm-hmm. it, it is changing. And FAA has really been talking a lot about how the world is changing and they need to change as well. They're they're a little bit bound up by uh, congressional approval and you know the need to to actually get permission to do some things, but for the most part, you know, FAA exists because Congress delegated that power to the executive branch and the executive branch built FAA. So, you know, to some extent they can they can do this on their own and and they are doing it. So, it, it's really interesting like you know, disclaimer, I work for DOT. I'm a contractor. FAA is (laughs) under DOT, but like FAA, every time I read about them in the news and every time I interact with them, they, they really seem like a cool branch of the government. Like they really seem like they care about getting things right and care about getting things right as quickly as possible. And quickly is not going to supersede right, but they, you know, it's all, it all seems really well balanced. Um, and that that's uh, very unusual. <laughs> um, so it's just, it it seems cool. I, I I like the FAA as much as you can like uh, a bureaucracy. You know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> as as far as bureaucracies go, FAA seems pretty cool. All right. So finally, this is a a little bit adjacent. Uh, but I thought it was worth talking about. The TAC-RS-3 contract is coming up. So this is a DOD contract, and uh, TAC-RS stands for Tactically Responsive Space, which is something that all the cool militaries are interested in. TACRS rs is the same as TACRL; rl uh, They just changed Launch to space, tactically re- responsive launch, tactically responsive space. They went with space because it's supposed to be more inclusive of all the activities that are associated with um, tactical uh, mm. responsiveness in space. Um, so the TAC RS-3 contract is, is pretty simple. Um, they have a vehicle called Victus Nox, uh, and it's basically the same uh, the same thing as was flown on TACRL 2 but uh the the contract is to launch this vehicle, uh a, a space domain awareness vehicle with short notice. And there's a little bit of a distinction between TACR L2 and TACR S3. Um, but what's interesting is that not everybody is uh eligible to compete for this contract. They basically said all the people who were included in the orbital services program three contract might be four contract. Uh, All those vendors are eligible to compete for this contract. So that's Avum, Firefly, Northrop Grumman, Rocket Lab, SpaceX, ULA, Vox, and Expo. I've never heard of Expo space. Uh, I need, I I need to look them up because if they're doing DOD contracts, I should know who they are. Um, So the reason I'm lumping this in now is because uh, ABL, Astra and relativity were all added to OSP four. Uh, back in August. So Astra is eligible to compete for the TAC RS3 contract. And you know, I kind of suspect that they're gonna get it based on the specifications for this. So uh this is like a preparedness kind of thing. Like what what can we do? Oh, I'm gonna stop in the middle of my sentence. Leon in the chat says Expo are the guys who took over Super Stripey from Sandia. Really Really good. Okay. That's now I know who they are. <laughs> okay, cool. So the whole TAC RL, TAC RS system, or uh series of missions is, is to get payloads that DOD wants up into space, but it's more about establishing the ability to be tactically responsive in space. I'm going to say that every chance I get. So TAC RL2, the previous contract, uh, was flown on a Pegasus XL and so the idea was they wanted to go from beginning mission planning to launch uh, in like 10 months or fewer, or something like that. They they actually did it in fewer than 10 months. I don't know what the goal was. But then they wanted to be able to hand the the vehicle off and have it integrated and launched within 21 days, which is really short. Like, that's that's not a, a lot of time. Hmm. Uh, TAC RS3 is way more intense, which is why I'm thinking Astra's is probably in a really good place for it. It only allows months to get to mission readiness from instead of 10 months, we're talking like a, a several months, a handful of months. And so the idea is you, you do uh, all of your planning and integration, everything over a couple of months, and then you go into an unknown hold period, which could be a week or it could be a couple of months. And then you get the green light to launch this vehicle and you have 24 hours from the green light to actually getting it off the ground that that's really intense um especially with an unknown hold period um Mm. and this this seems like a really great way to test actual responsiveness um like how well do you actually uh, respond to changing conditions rather than, you know, just setting a really specific cadence and sticking to it. Like, actually having those unknowns is going to hopefully lead to an impressive uh, launch demonstration.
2: Yeah, it's a really cool concept. I like that this is happening in parallel with sort of all the other kind of buzzwordy things in spaceflight right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it sucks that it has to. Um, this week we saw a couple of different nations sign on to... Um, geez, I can't remember. It's, it's an agreement about, about combat in space. And so, you know, there's, there's some movement there, but like, I feel like everywhere should be civilian territory. Like, you know, I don't think that, that any perfect world includes a military and like, however far you want to step away from perfect and have that still be true is totally up for debate. But like, you know, I'm such an idealist. I see space as being a place for science and tourists and you know, all these good things. And it, it just really sucks to have it littered with more military intention. So I hate that this has to happen, but I agree. It's, this is a really cool part of living in the actual world that we live in, as opposed to the ideal world uh where my head likes to hang out in.
2: That's a good way to put it. Kind of, I was, when I was, Make that comment. Yeah. I was thinking instinctively just about how like, ooh, quick, rapid turnaround and the hardware that they have to do and getting the systems up and running and how cool that is. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you step back and think about it big picture, it is kind of unfortunate. Well, and that's, that's the
1: thing about aerospace, isn't it? Like the coolest technologies mm-hmm. all come from war. Now, that doesn't mean that war is worth it. I guarantee you those lives lost are not worth it. But, like, there's really incredible technology that came out of both of the world wars. There's really cool technology that's coming out of this requirement here to to be responsive. So it's kind of the, the sugar that helps the poison pill go down.
0: Yeah. Well, it's either cool technology that comes from war or it's cool technology that will be then used for war because it's
1: cool. <laughs> Boy, I thought I was a downer. Thanks, David.
0: Okay, let's do four short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first?
1: Right, first, Axiom One putting strain on ISS. The Axiom-1 crew, despite their extended stay aboard station, experienced an aggressive pace of work while on orbit. The four astronauts remarked that the heavy load of scientific experiments were not allocated enough time, and that NASA and ESA crew were necessary in fulfilling their objectives. This, in turn, put extra strain on the space agencies in performing their daily tasks. Although Michael Lopez-Alegria, commander of Axiom-1, was quick to add that the NASA and ESA crew were extraordinarily helpful and gracious with their time. Axiom plans to gradually reduce the workload on future missions while also extending future missions to ISS.
2: Next up, Tianzhou-4 successfully reaches Chinese Space Station. Seven hours after its launch from the Wenchang Launch Center in southern Hainan, the Tianzhou-4's cargo spacecraft has completed an automated docking of the currently unoccupied Chinese Space Station. The sixth of 11 missions for the construction of the station, the spacecraft delivered about 6.9 tons of supplies in preparation for the crew of Shenzhou 14's mission this coming June. Those Taikonauts will then begin a 6-month stay on orbit overseeing the arrival of the second and third space station modules, Wenxian, a lab living quarters with a new airlock and a small robotic arm, and Mengtian, a second lab module.
0: Next up, non-GPS satellite slated for launch. Defense contractor Casey International is funding a demonstration mission that will put a non-GPS PNT or positioning, navigation and timing satellite into orbit in order to facilitate current global positioning systems. The key technology is called two-way time transfer, wherein the ground-based receiver transmits a signal to the satellite in sync with the satellite's transmission to ground. This method will make navigation less susceptible to jamming. Another Casey International payload scheduled for launch is a sensor system currently used on the ground that will detect signals emitted by adversary radios or jammers and geolocate them. Both payloads will be launched aboard SpaceX Transporter 7 rideshare.
1: All right, and last up, JWST final steps before science career. JWST completed its final optical alignment last month and has now also completed FOV corrections for each of its four instruments. The team is now in the final commissioning steps, which will involve performing tests on the 17 available science modes. During this time, distortion and point spread will be calibrated for each mode. Additionally, pointing adjustments will be determined for the finest modes, and moving target tracking will be tested, using several asteroids with different apparent speeds as targets. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we have a correction slash um, elaboration from uh, Joel Rogers. And this is about the little mention we had at the end of last week's twist of about the drag shoot on shuttle or the drogue shoot, whichever you call it. I'm never sure which one. but as to why it didn't have that previous to that mission, which was FCS 49 and then from that point forward, it did. Oh, actually, first of all, okay, there's several corrections. I'm skipping ahead, right? So we should talk about the first correction, which is about steering wheels in space, which was just kind of like an offhand mention.
1: This one's for me. This is a correction for something I said, and I, I love getting this right
0: well you had mentioned that there were steering wheels on the lunar rovers which actually you know when you said that i was like yeah i think there were but wouldn't it make more sense for there to be like a little joystick (laughs) but i I didn't say that
1: (laughs) like in my head i can see a steering wheel i've like i've looked at so many images and diagrams you know like drawings of these things and in my head there's a there's a steering wheel and i can i can see an astronaut with a steering wheel in his hand zooming around the moon
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that image looks right in my head too. Funny how memory but, works, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like the, that's a, uh, what do they call that? The Mandela effect. <laughs> mm. It's kind of like that. Sure, yeah. Like we all think that that's there's a steering wheel, but no, there was- We can yeah. chalk
2: it up to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
0: but yeah, there was no steering wheel. So there's actually a single control stick, which is mounted between the two seats. That's how they get around. Uh, and he says that moving the stick forward increases over speed. And if you pull it back, it applies the brakes. And then you can, you know, turn left and right- which actually changes uh, the steering of all four wheels on the rover, which is pretty cool. Hmm. And that for part of one of the missions, only two wheels worked. So that's how you control a lunar rover, not with a steering wheel, which seems much simpler because that way you don't need to apply a brake. It's all built into the, you know, little joystick there.
1: Yeah. Could you imagine having to operate pedals in an EVA suit? No. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so now getting back to the shuttle drag chute, the full explanation as to why they have that is because, well, first of all, what Joel says, and I think that we did mention is that there were some landings at KSC that did not have the chute, because I think that we were saying that you needed a chute because it was a much smaller runway. And so you're kind of cutting it close, but you, know, you could do it, but you didn't necessarily want to. The deployment of the chute would actually shorten the distance by about one to 2,000 feet, then it would jettison around 60 knots so that it didn't hit the SSME bells as the orbiter slowed. And,
1: and by it, we mean them because there were three chutes, right? Now I'm beginning to m- doubt my mandela here.
0: No, I think you're right. <laughs> and that uh, using the drag chute also helped uh, derotate and it also helped with crosswind characteristics. So derotate, I think, just means uh, get the nose down, right? The actual landing gear. To rotate that in a downward direction and hit the tarmac, because um, I looked it up and as far as I can tell, that's what that means. Normally, the chutes deploy between the time that the rear landing gear hits and then the nose. But on that particular mission, the nose went down, then they deployed the chute. But that's not typical.
1: Mandela'd myself again. <laughs> Jeez. We're we're look we're looking at the we're looking at the notes, and you see Dennis's cursor pop up. Create a new line and go. There was only one shoot. Dot 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 frowny face.
0: <laughs> I guess we're thinking of maybe the shoots that are on these solid rocket motors when they come back down. Cause those are three at least. I don't,
1: I don't know. I did like, I didn't, I didn't do any research. So like my, everything is suspect.
2: Yeah. Those, those are <laughs> suspect shoots. than when I do research. Yeah. And, and the, ca- okay. the capsules tended to have multiple shoots.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Could've, I could have sworn I've seen, but yeah, one, one tiny little shoot, right? Like relatively speaking. So, so STS one, it just for comparison, it's rollout distance was almost 9,000 feet, 8,993 feet. So dropping what a thousand feet, is that what it is between a thousand and 2000 feet? That's a big deal. Like that's 10 or 20 or more like, you know, 15 or 30% yeah i'm not gonna do the math but like that that's all that's a lot of distance there so
0: so as joel mentioned this helps with crosswind characteristics as well i guess in that case it was a tailwind but yeah it helps with crosswind which i don't understand quite how i guess just because if the shuttle is slowing down faster than crosswind um is you know just like less of a problem um i kind of think of it as like when you're driving in a car if you're going fast getting hit from the side with the wind will push you off the road but if you're going slow it doesn't make much of a difference but i don't understand how crosswind or how it helps with that.
1: Colin's got a good, uh, a good succinct description. Uh, Colin in the chat says, the tail surface blows your tail leeward, forcing your nose windward. You, you want to steer into the wind because the wind is going to push you leeward. Ta- tail surface plus parachute, right?
2: I would just think of it this way, that in an ideal world, right, the drag chute just wants to yoink the shuttle into mm-hmm. perfect alignment with it. And so if yeah, it's like sitting a, out back and it's being fish. driven mostly by the wind that it's catching and not so much, you know, winds buffeting it from the sides, then any time the t- the orbiter gets buffeted left or right. It's just going to try to yank it back to that center line.
0: And then just one last thing or one last benefit of having a parachute or a drag chute rather is that it actually reduces the wear and tear on the tires and brakes because, you know, you're putting uh, less time on those or you're not having to brake as much with the brakes. I think there was a shuttle. I There's a high profile number. one. Yeah. A- well, there's a couple where the landing didn't go nominally, but yeah, there was one where the left or the Port or starboard side, I'm not sure which uh, brake had to be applied more than the other because of crosswind. And that caused, I believe, like one of the brakes to burn out and the tire to explode or something. Um, It was not good. Mm. They did have a tire explode, but it was towards the very final stretch. So it didn't impact the shuttle too much, but they could actually hear the pop and then like the, you know, like that plump, 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 plump sound. (laughs) Like you could actually hear a flat tire, (laughs) which is kind of funny. They heard that from inside the orbiter. So yeah, thanks for the correction, because we have a much better understanding of it. Yeah, one shoot per shuttle, not three. And uh, now we understand why they're there. All right, so this week in Spaceflight History, we have just three winners. uh, The Greek, Leon Running Man, and uh, we have Deathkin. That's it. And the clue was, uh, if a spacecraft falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, dot, dot, dot. So that's a good little riddle. Yeah. And Dennis, what is the answer?
2: Right. So so this is not the answer of episode 204 when we last used this clue, uh, which was the launch of Salyut 2 slash Almaz 1. And it is not the answer to episode 306 when we also used a variation of this clue, which was oh, the man. failure of a Brixis X-ray satellite. So that first one, Ben used it. The second one, I used it. We really go to this well a lot, <laughs> talking about this <laughs> philosophical joke, uh, don't we? But yeah. Um, but in my defense, in that last episode, nobody got the right answer. And so therefore, it was okay to reuse this falls in a forest line. And the correct answer that the Greek Leon Running Man and Death can got was or the correct event, was the 19th of May, 1961, and it was the first flyby of Venus by Venera 1. As for no one being around to hear it, well, we'll get to that. So, a little bit of background. Um, this is 1961, so in October of 1960, some months earlier, the uh, Soviet 1M probes were sent to Mars and had failed. And so, at that point, there was a window opening for a Venusian Mission, and so uh, this mission designated one VA was uh, prepared for and became the new focus for everybody to work on in the uh, in, in Russia in Soviet spaceflight. And so uh, that window was uh, January fifteenth, nineteen sixty one, and they that really only gave them months between October of the previous year to January. And in addition, they were going to have an entirely new rocket to take this uh, spacecraft to Venus, uh, one of the new interplanetary ones. And so they were like, okay, let's do this anyway. Um, that's kind of how it was in these early days. This mission initially, not even initially, was always uh, nominally supposed to impact Venus itself. Um, but there was a very small chance of that. I mean, 1960s navigation technology wasn't quite what it is nowadays, as well as trajectories, uh, uh calculations and all that jazz um but also it was (laughs) this is so long ago that uncertainty in what the measurement of the astronomical unit itself was was a big factor for meaning that they weren't going to probably be able to hit this several thousand kilometer wide object after traveling hundreds of millions of kilometers towards it in any event it was more like uh i don't know an aspiration than something that they realistically figured they were going to be able to pull off the spacecraft itself for uh what was ultimately the Venera-1 mission, um, was, uh, I guess it was maybe the second or third, uh, it was one of these uh, automatic interplanetary stations. Had you heard this term before? Automatic interplanetary nope. station? Yeah. So apparently this was, this was just the Soviet designation of their interplanetary space probes. So they, they called them huh. these automatic interplanetary stations. And so that's, that's the,
1: the term. More than just, oh yeah, Luna, Zond. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, big old lumpy category.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a way that they categorized uh, a lot of their missions using that term. So I thought that was interesting because, yeah, I'd never heard it either. Cool. And so uh, if you want to picture what this uh, spacecraft looks like, it's about two meters tall, uh, a cylinder with a dome on top, and then two uh, radially extended solar panels coming out of the sides uh, with a total surface area of about two square meters. They're not big solar panels like you might envision that we have on spacecraft nowadays. They were more like flaps, uh, I would describe it more like, uh, this was more like a penguin than a great eagle. So just a little stubby kind of flaps on the sides. And uh, I had to point out that it used uh, louvers for thermal control because I had only oh, recently yeah. learned about that, how <laughs> you could do that, right? You would open or close the shutters appropriately to adjust the control or the temperature of your spacecraft. And so this is going back to 1961 that they were using this for missions. The antennas, I want to talk a little bit about them because that turns out to be uh, fairly important uh, to the mission, although maybe not as important as you might think. So uh, it had three antennas on board. So there was a 2.4-meter-long omnidirectional, omnidirectional antenna uh, that basically did VHF stuff and would be useful for the early stages of communicating with the spacecraft while it was still close to Earth. Then there was, uh, when it got close to Venus, uh, it would deploy this big parabolic 2-meter uh, diameter, actually even a little bigger than 2-meter Uh, meter diameter, uh, a high-gain antenna uh, that would do some, what is, you know, we now know as L and S band um, communications back to Earth. And so, right, that's, you're going to want to have your bigger throughput because you're now as far from Uh, the Earth as you're going to be during the useful part of the mission, the critical part of the mission. And then there was a actually an intermediate antenna as well, a a T-shaped semi-directional antenna. And so this one would basically was at an intermediate frequency between the other two, UHF, and it'd be used for uh, direct-to-Earth communication when you were too far away for the omnidirectional, but you weren't quite quite ready to bust out the high-gain antenna. I thought that was pretty interesting to kind of try to cover all your bases there with the antennas. And then scientific instruments, this was early days where the instruments were rudimentary, but you were getting very fundamental stuff because you were measuring things for the very first time. Um, And so it had a magnetometer, an ion trap, a micrometeorite detector, uh, and a cosmic ray counter, as well as an infrared radiometer for uh, getting measurements of Venus itself, if it were to... You know, do its flyby. Maybe it would impact Venus, but in all likelihood, right? It would do a flyby and you'd be able to go and uh, get some good close up measurements of Venus. And I liked uh, this. This is such a sign of the times. Uh, The dome at the top that I mentioned was pressurized to uh, 1.2 atmospheres and it contained pennants, including a seven centimeter diameter globe of the Earth that had a disk in it uh, with the Soviet coat of arms on one side and a diagram of the solar system on the other. And so clearly you would want to have that there. So when you go and land in Venus and splash down in the oceans of Venus, because again, this was that time where we did not know the surface properties of Venus that well, you very well could have landed in oceans as far as we could tell, and then go and bring this little piece of propaganda to another world.
0: I thought it was because if they thought that maybe there might be, you know, like inhabitants or Venusians or something and they wanted to show them, this is where we're from. I mean, I don't understand why they would.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a twofer, I guess, you know, I mean, yeah, if there's life there, then they definitely, the life can see it. Otherwise you get to go and tell everybody that you put these awesome knickknacks, you know, (laughs) on the, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. Maybe it was uh, as, I don't know if it was as, it doesn't strike me as, as sophisticated as the golden plates on Voyager or, or the ones that were on pioneer uh, in terms of like, you know, being intentionally designed, like aliens see it and they can, interpret from that where planet earth is in the galaxy and uh, humans and dna and all that kind of stuff but but maybe (laughs) because because yeah life being on venus was still in play at this time i think
0: yeah well i mean it has a diagram of the solar system so i just didn't see why they would put that there um, unless they thought that somebody would see it i get the soviet you know like you want to put flags on the planet or whatever but a diagram i don't see the reason for that other than to announce where it came from you let the
2: you let the upper brass design the one side, and then you let the uh, the scientists and engineers design the other. And they...
0: Yeah, that makes <laughs> more know. sense. I don't know.
2: <laughs> I'm just joking, but yeah, no,
1: that 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 uh, is did good. Did you mention Did you mention that the uh, the little seven centimeter globe was designed so that it could float on? A theor- you know, theoretically could float on an ocean on the surface of, of Venus.
2: Sure, I didn't mention the floating. I said, yeah, it, so not only would it, like, potentially splash down on Venus, but, uh, yeah, that makes sense that that globe would then be able to kind of float along there so any aliens can go and fish it out and check it out. And as far as how the spacecraft was stabilized, I thought this was uh, a pretty cool idea or a pretty cool approach as well as something that is important to the story later on. And so it was launched, essentially uh, spin-stabilized, until it would get near Venus, and then it would be able to switch over to three-axis stabilization, so it would be able to point its instruments in the correct location for getting their measurements, because uh, in particular that infrared radiometer was uh, needed to be pointed in the right direction, uh, as well as making sure that the high-gain antenna would then point back to Earth so you could communicate back home. And so the mission itself, um, this new rocket that would be taking it was an 8 k 78 uh, which we later uh, were named, uh, these in this series, uh, Molnias, which uh, made it, at this time, the most powerful launch vehicle. And it had the uh, Tejali Sputnik V Earth-Orbiting Launch Platform, where those last four words come from a, a NASA document. Tejeli Sputnik V is basically uh, the name that they had given the uppermost stage of the rocket that would ultimately send the spacecraft on its way to Venus. Uh also means heavy. So you might have heard of heavy sput- Sputnik, that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah, the AK7A is, was was pretty cool. It, it had some improvements on the previous uh, uh Soviet launcher, the AK72, uh which was called Luna, uh, and so you might know it by that name. Uh right? Uh similar to this like right this era there's a lot of spacecraft and rockets with that shared names. And so Luna uh, was one of those. There were four stages. And so the question is, do you want to zero index it or not? And so it depends on the source. Uh, I'm going to, for the sake of Mm -hmm. me not getting tripped up, I'm going to remove the zero indexing, and I'm going to start with stage one as stage one. And so uh, stage one and stage two fire in parallel at the beginning. So this is... uh, uh, stage one is these four uh, rd107 engines that are strapped on around the central uh, rd108 engine and that central one counts as the stage two so that's the kind of designation that they would give for those these uh had lar- these engines had larger tanks and higher pressurization so they had a few percent more thrust than the uh, previous uh, uh Luna ones and essentially they were uh, reinforced r7 icBMs but what really made the Molniya the most powerful launch vehicle at the time was the addition of a third and fourth stage. So that third stage was a single RD-0107 which was uh as a bit of a side of history was the uh designed or developed for the R9 rocket which was Korolev's last attempt to try to make a militarily useful rocket or missile I guess. Obviously missiles kept being developed but this was Korolev's last shot at making a uh, uh, one. The idea was that the stage three would take you up to the parking orbit around the Earth, and this is what had failed for those, uh, aforementioned, uh, 1M probes to Mars, why they weren't able to get to the, uh, planet. They, they, you know, they just didn't leave Earth orbit. And fun fact, these three are the basis for Soyuz, that classic kind of, uh, Soviet slash Russian heritage that, and, and family trees that kind of passed down, down over the generations, and so, um, that's why if you looked at a, a an 8K78 Molniya, yeah, you would basically be seeing what looks like a Soyuz nowadays. And then finally, the there's that fourth stage, the uh, the the heavy Sputnik, um, and this one uh, was very innovative. And uh, shout out to Leon Running Man for pointing out a few of these uh, 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 first successes from this uh, this fourth stage. And so the engine was an S1 dot uh, an S15400 it needed to be able to restart after one orbit in uh, free fall, uh, you know, microgravity. And so that was going to be something challenging. Uh, it didn't always work, as we'll see. But uh, it was it was impressive. It had uh, 340 seconds of uh, specific impulse, which was the highest at the time. Um, it was the first engine to restart. And, like, still pretty high. Yeah, that's that's nothing to, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, to yeah.
1: balk at. Yeah, for sure. Russian engines are, uh, like, in a class of their own. Mm-hmm. Like throughout history, yeah.
2: <laughs> totally. And it was also the first stage combustion cycle, probably in no small part why it had uh, such good ISP. And it also uh, had uh, a section uh, the called the uh, BOZ or uh, Block Abyspechnia Zapushka, which is, uh, that's what the BOZ stands for. And, and that translates to ignition insurance system. Uh, which is essentially four ullage motors. And this was the first time ullage motors were used, right? So giving yourself a little bit of a push to get your propellant to the uh, outlet of the tank so you're not sucking in air into your <laughs> uh, engines and causing trouble. And then it also had another important uh, feature on there, the orientation and stabilization system, or uh, SOIS which I wasn't able to dig up that uh, what that is in Russian, but essentially it was a uh, a bunch of uh, gas thrusters to make sure you were pointed in the right direction when you were ready to leave low Earth orbit, your parking orbit, and go to your interplanetary uh, destination. Right, and so yeah, basically you would just how long were you in your parking orbit? Just however long until you got to the right uh, location for your uh, insertion point. And so typically it'd just be kind of one orbit ish, and then you would go and fire your stage four. And uh, when I was looking into this, I found something I thought was pretty cool, too. Uh, th- this nomenclature that's used for the different parts of a Molnaya The core was called Block A. Those four strap-ons each had their own block uh, letter, Blocks B, V, G, and D. The third stage was Block I, and the fourth stage was Block L. So it was Block L that was this uh, Earth-orbiting platform, the uh, heavy Sputnik Five. At least for this mission, it was five. It was just heavy Sputnik in general, I guess. Yeah, so so if you ever see them referencing, you know, the Block I was a part of this failure or whatever, that's talking about, in this case, the third engine of this, uh, or the third stage of this particular uh, Molnaya uh, rocket. This parking orbit was, you know, 230 by 280 kilometers roughly, and uh, 65 degrees inclination. So quite inclined, and that was that. Now, the Venera 1 mission uh, launched finally on uh, February 12th, uh, on the uh, the Molina with the serial number L17 or designation L17. Uh, after weeks of delays and rushing, and so there was it wasn't a smooth way to the pad. And in fact, uh, this follows the pattern where One VA was the name of the the mission. And so if the first spacecraft failed, fine. One VA number one failed. We're just going to send another one, and we're going to still call it One VA. Now it's 1VA number two. We're going to keep doing this until we get a successful mission, and then we'll give it a top level mission name, Venera 1. So, this actually wasn't the first one uh, that this Twissif is about. Basically, days earlier, maybe a week earlier ish, uh, 1VA number one uh, failed because the Block L, that fourth stage, uh, had a power supply issue. And so it wasn't able to leave Earth orbit. So, it just loitered in its parking orbit for a few years, and then it went and Basically, well, at some point it had deorbited, and a few years after that launch, the debris was found, and including a, a kid apparently uh, kind of stumbling upon it and found the commemorative disk. And so, hey, you know, it was able to be interpreted by humans, I guess, uh, in this case. Yeah, so 1VA number one failed, and so that's not the target of this uh, this. Twisiv. Instead, it's one VA number two, this one that was launched on February twelfth. And uh both of these, you know, were the heaviest objects uh to be put on orbit at the time, both the first failed one and the current one that I'm talking about. And so in this case, uh the first three stages, uh, right, block A, block blah, blah, blah for the strap-ons, and then block I for the third stage, all made it. And so they're ready to burn that uh fourth stage, the Block L, and uh, inject into a heliocentric orbit. And so later that day, on February 12th and uh, as well as the 13th, they had two healthy communication sessions after the spacecraft was outbound uh, at 126,000 and 490,000 kilometers, respectively. So roughly, give or take, the Earth-Moon distance is 400,000 kilometers and so, you know, you could already tell it was on its way there, but, you know, it was still in kind of cislunar space you could think of. And so the idea was there was a uh, onboard timer uh, on the spacecraft uh, set by ground control and would communicate every five-ish days from then on. So five days later, February 17th, it's now almost 2 million kilometers from Earth. And there's normal operation conditions. Some scientific data returned, right? At that point, inter- interplanetary space is something we're still in our early days of exploring. So that was cool. And then five days later, on the 22nd, it's now over 3 million kilometers from the Earth. And now there's some mixed reports. Uh, The OKB-1 Design Bureau says uh, there were commands that were acknowledged. But uh, elsewhere, it was reported that there was a failure. Uh, What likely seems to have happened is that the spacecraft was able to receive some information from ground. uh, But they weren't really able to get anything back. Uh, Five days later, there were now fade-outs being reported. no useful information transmitted either way. And finally, on March 4th, at 7.5 million kilometers, the comms were completely failed. That was the session that they were unable to communicate with it anymore. And so that meant that this mission, right, Veneer 1, was just a bust. So what had caused the comms to completely fail? Uh, the culprit turned out to be an overheated solar tracker. And so there was a star and sun seeker on board for keeping the spacecraft uh, oriented and, uh, you know, doing its navigation, figuring out its orientation and attitude. What happened was the thermal control system turned out to be inadequate to keeping the solar tracker cool enough. To remedy that, they put it spinning along the sun-pointed axis uh, to let it kind of, I guess, barbecue rollish, or, uh, barbecue roll its way out of that being a tr- problem. And then when they needed to communicate to Earth every f- five days, they'd have to switch to that three-axis stabilization that I mentioned earlier that they were capable of doing. And as a result, uh, eventually, I guess, it just got to the point where it was overheated too much and it didn't know where it was, and so it couldn't point back to Earth with the semi-directional antenna and communicate with us anymore. Um, they're also, uh, from, the, from the Soviet uh, response, they said that they – the timer, the onboard timer, uh, may have malfunctioned as well. And so there might have been uh, some timing issues that they weren't getting the signals at the right time or that they weren't pointed in the right direction because it wasn't synced up correctly. It wasn't timed up correctly. Uh, this would have been the first attempt at mid-course correction uh, for an interplanetary spacecraft, but obviously those could not fire or do anything. Uh, the spacecraft sailed uh, 100,000 kilometers past Venus on May 19th, and hence the clue... If a uh, if a spacecraft falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, dot dot dot. Well, that's what happened here. The spacecraft they knew based on orbital mechanics that it was going to be flying by Venus, and they were able to basically tease out that it'd be you know 100,000 kilometers. Um, but there was a last-ditch effort where the Soviets basically uh, made a uh, or uh, worked with the Brit uh, the British at uh Jodrell Bank, a famous radio uh, uh observatory, and tried to establish uh contact during that flyby, but that didn't work out. Um there was not really any, any signal received. And so now it's just kind of orbiting around the sun with its uh its little solar system and Soviet uh <laughs> emblem <laughs> on yeah. board. And yeah. And that is uh that is your uh, event for this week in spaceflight history.
0: Awesome. This week in spaceflight history. And uh, yeah, it's always fun to hear about Venus. And I guess even if it's not a completely successful mission, but they did have some successful ones as well, So, mm. which I think we've talked about those before. All right. So getting away from Venus and coming back here to Earth um, and the clue, um, the date range is the 24th through the 30th of May. And Ben, do you have a clue for us for next week?
1: Yeah. Next week in 2000, the clue is freshly imported.
0: Freshly imported. Uh, Something to do with space, not beer. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think you know what (laughs) that clue is in reference to... Yeah, could be. They don't know that. Um, Yeah, so if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming space flight events. We got three interesting launches, um, or at least two of them. I guess one's pretty pretty normal. All
1: right. uh, First is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 418. Launch Library says this is 53 satellites. That's going to be flying uh, on Wednesday, May 18th at 1040
2: hours UTC uh, out of uh, Slick 39A at the Cape. And then next up, we've got a uh, launch that has been a long time in the making. (laughs) And so this is, of course, Boeing's Orbital Flight Test 2 and so right this is a uncrewed test of the cst-100 starliner um you know about all the background if you don't then listen to some of our older episodes where we cover a lot of this <laughs> and it'll be flying on an atlas 5 22 and so that's i believe that's a configuration specific to starliner right yeah, N22. yeah. and for no fairing ah yeah. thank you yeah and for no fairing. cool yeah so uh this launch there's going to be a bit to it, uh, the launch itself will take place on May 19th at 44 UTC from the CAPE, uh, Slick 41. And then on May 20th, there will be coverage of the rendezvous and docking on NASA TV. And so that coverage will begin at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. And uh, the docking itself, though, is scheduled for 7.10 p.m. Eastern. Now, that's late enough that the next day on May 21st, Saturday at 11:30 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time will be coverage of the opening of the hatch. Uh, also, the fact that you don't have meat bags on board, so I guess they could take a little time opening mm-hmm. it. And so again, that coverage for the opening starts at 11:30 a.m. with the opening itself scheduled at 11:45 a.m. And uh, it's the coverage is going to continue through welcoming remarks by the crew. Uh, I guess they're not going to introduce any new people on board, but they'll get to be happy that. Uh, Boeing made it to orbit with the uh, with their new spacecraft.
0: After that, on May twentieth, we have the launch of a new Shepard, and this is NS twenty one, and that is launching from thirteen thirty through sixteen thirty UTC, and it will be launching from West Texas Suborbital Launch Site uh, slash Corn Ranch, cool name, launching from that suborbital launch site, and uh, this is the fifth crewed. New Shepard flight, and it it will Hmm. be carrying six passengers. I don't know if there were any big-time celebrities on board. I didn't check, but I'm sure we'll hear about it once they land.
2: Yeah, I was going to say it looks like the notability is uh, one person made it to Challenger Deep. And uh the first Brazilian born woman would be breaking the Carmen line. So making it the
1: Challenger Deep, it could be one of these it could either be Hamish Harding or Victor Vescovo, because both of those names sound like explorer names.
2: Notably Harding Dived the Challenger Deep, the deepest point in the world, with Victor Vescovo in a two person submarine. It's both of oh, them. Oh, so it's actually. both of them? Yep, (laughs) I had to to read more carefully. Ben, your instincts beat me actually reading an article. You nailed it. (laughs) Oh my god, that's lovely. Oh, jeez. You won today, man. (laughs)
1: Holy cow. All right, and those are your upcoming Spaceflight events.
0: All right, and with that, let's do with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to Colin, Deathkin, Mike, the Greek, and Leon Running Man for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can
2: talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Bye we